This is a Broad Pods production. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When it comes to women's rights, in many cases, the freedoms we have today are because of the persistence of lawyers who've gone before us. So how does the law protect and empower women? Well, understanding your rights is a good place to start. In this podcast, we go inside landmark cases and the laws that have redesigned society. And we'll hear from strong, smart and experienced lawyers determined to make a difference in the lives of women and girls. I'm Jo Stanley and this is Lay Down the Law. Lay Down the Law is a collaboration between Broad Radio and Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers, experience you can count on. Well, one of the many things I've learned creating this podcast series is that women's impact in the law is profound. Not just because simply by their presence as lawyers, through their determination to take their place at the table or the bar, they are shifting gender imbalance, but because of the human rights causes so often taken up by women. In this series alone, we've learned about reproductive rights, Aboriginal rights, superannuation equality, sexual harassment and workplace safety, reforms all led by women who insisted on fighting for justice. And in this episode of Lay Down the Law, we meet another lawyer who daily represents those seeking justice. Demetra Dubrow is National Head of Medical Negligence at Morris Blackburn Lawyers. She's been a lawyer for over 20 years, and it is my privilege to make this conversation all about her. Because we all learn from each other's stories and are spurred on by each other's courage. So it's our wish that this conversation might be just the energizer you need to keep going. Demetra, thanks for letting me shine a spotlight on you today. Oh, thanks so much, Joe. You know, for every one of us, as we go about living our purpose today, there was something, however many years ago, a moment, a person, an event, that often was the genesis for what we're doing right now, the reason that we're doing what we're doing. So why law for you? Well, in school, I was interested in art and literature, but I also did a subject called legal process. And I still remember my teacher Mr. Debonardi, who really brought that subject to life. And also in the late 80s, there was a US series called LA Law. Oh my God, I loved LA Law! I know, there was some pretty powerful legal work being done there. And they did it all in a week in terms of their cases anyway. They resolved them in the week. It started with the Monday morning meeting. And then each lawyer was able to just do some fabulous uh, lawyering while looking very poised. And if only... (laughs) Real life legal work was like that. But yeah, when I started studying law, I became very interested in the stories and the people at the centre of the cases that we were studying. 
And doing a combined arts law degree, I was able to pursue my interest in art, doing honours in visual arts and also travelling and studying law in Germany too. I, I do remember, so for me, my interest in, I never studied law, but I always said when I was in primary school and also high school that I was going to be a lawyer, never ever even attempted it. But it started for me with Carson's Law when I was in primary school yeah. with Lorraine Bailey, who was so cross all the time, but she seemed yeah. to, she represented the underdog beautifully. Um, yeah. it, I, I love, and we had Ali McBeal. I mean, you know, there are women lawyers that really have, yeah. have inspired, I think, perhaps a whole generation of lawyers. That is true. And there are plenty of successful women in LA law too. <laughs> it's true. And some pretty hot male lawyers as well, I will say. Jimmy it Smith. Was true, true. <laughs> so, but you're the daughter of first-generation Greek migrants. Was there an impact for you being raised by a migrant family? Well, yeah. I mean, we had, I had a pretty typical Greek Australian upbringing, you might say, but in many ways it was not typical because, you know, there's no such thing as a typical Australian or Greek upbringing. There's that much diversity. But um, I guess in the typical category was having our grandmother or Yaya live with us. She would care for my sister and I, and when we'd come home from school, there'd be French toast and decaffeinated coffee. And in my memory, it feels like that happened, you know, daily, but I'm sure, I'm sure looking back, it couldn't have been. We also had our mother, who was a seamstress, sew for my sister and I, dresses, clothes, all our clothes, really, um, including frilly skirts when all the other girls were getting around in Fabergé or Lee jeans. So that was pretty uncool. But, you know, my sister, who's older than me, had to endure going to school in the early years with uh, cucumber and feta sandwiches. So at least I, I dodged that. But I also got to see the value of free education um, and the opportunity for a new beginning. So my dad grew up in a port city in Greece and um, so that he could practice his English, he'd go down and talk to travellers and sailors and he was 17 when he came to Australia, but because of that, he was able to pursue his love of languages and finish high school here and then do university part-time and become a teacher. So experiencing all this, I knew that there were opportunities that wouldn't have been available for my parents in Greece. And while that was a good thing that they were here, it also meant some pressure to make sure you didn't waste those opportunities that you had. People like my parents had come to the other side of the world having a new language, um, having to um, adjust to life, while having also the opportunities for financial security that they otherwise wouldn't have had. And of course, there was often, you know, more than one member of your family here. But for example, my mum was 17 when she came and she just had her aunt. So I think people like me were very conscious of those sacrifices that were being made and we felt like we really needed to take every opportunity that was being afforded to us. Now, you, you would know, um, and I quite like reading some of the things that George Megalogiannis has to say, you know, journalist and political commentator, and uh, he's also a second generation Greek, as that name might suggest. He, he says, you can measure the success of Australia's post-war migration program in terms of small business success and home ownership for the first generation and educational and professional excellence for the second. The data is telling us consistently that Australian-born children of non-English-speaking migrants outperform their peers 
and then the third generation returns to the average. And I don't know about outperforming peers, and I'm sure I don't think that's the case, but I certainly did have that determination to do well academically and to study hard, and I didn't let the nerdiness of that deter me. Do end up working pretty hard at everything, doing as well as you can to try to fit in. And as I say, sometimes that was hard at places like Nunawading High School with big Greek hair in the mix. <laughs> Which, um, by the way, your big Greek hair is spectacular and <laughs> not so big anymore. <laughs> is it really tamed yeah, now? Such the aging process. Would you say culturally? you know, that there is uh, more diversity in the law now? And when you began, was it unusual for someone to be of a first generation from migrant family? Oh, well, um, yes and no. I mean, I think there has been uh, a bit of a mix. Certainly when I arrived at Morris Blackburn, there were people from non-English speaking backgrounds. Um, but that's certainly like all areas of diversity, that's certainly improved and changed over time. But yes, I think that there have been, there were people in the 80s and the 90s and including when I arrived at Morris Blackburn um, from non-English speaking backgrounds. But I think it's, you know, it was then more um, Italian, Greek backgrounds. And now we see other cultures coming through, which is as it should be. We need to see that kind of diversity in our law firms um, because our law firms need to reflect the community that we serve and we very much uh, um, are committed to that at Morris Blackburn and I'm sure at other firms too. You mentioned your yaya and I know that it was a very special relationship that you had with her, which is a lovely thing. You know, we, I think, as women and girls to have that you have your mother, but then to have your, that next level, that other generation of women inspiring us. What what did you learn from your yaya? What strengths have you brought with you? Yeah, well, my yaya was with us throughout our whole childhood. She had no formal education and didn't speak English at all. And of course, that wasn't an uncommon thing for a woman born in the early part of the 20th century in Greece. Um, also typical for her generation, she was engaged in domestic duties most of the time. And for her, it was only much later in life uh, that she was able to marry. And she married a widower and had uh, that widower already had six children. And they then had two children together, including my dad. Unfortunately, my grandfather died when my dad was quite young, but I'm heartened to know that my my yaya was happy during that time and I think happy being part of our lives too. My yaya provided for us, um, she ran the household beautifully, she did a lot of the cooking. We felt her immense love through those meals and of course all that French toast as well. But she was also tough, she sat with the straightest back and she had an inner strength and of course that kind of wisdom that she gained from everyday life and, and observations. And she'd lived through so much, no schooling, world war, domestic duties and the hardship and poverty of life in Greece. So my sister and I would go to doctor's appointments with, uh, with our yaya. We'd help her sign her name uh, one letter at a time because you know she hadn't learned to write. And we'd go to the bank with her. We'd interpret for her. Again, it's fairly typical for migrant families and other families but I do sometimes wonder how undignified um, she found that. 
um, us being there, her teenage granddaughters. And for us, it really made us grow up fast. I also grew up in a faith community and there were others in our church that I'd be thinking about how could I help them, how could I cheer up their day. Um, and you know, in the 80s, dried flowers were popular and oh, I remember yes. making poses for them. Uh, and I have no idea whether they liked that or just threw them straight out. <laughs> but I think my Christian, yeah, you might remember some dried flowers. Oh my gosh, we were mad for potpourri in the 80s. Pressed or yeah, actual yes. arrangements. Yeah. yeah. So I think my Christian faith has also fostered that approach of thinking about others, and that's informed my values, which I do see as social justice values, very much aligned with the work that I do now at Morris Blackburn, and the accountability that our work brings about. Now, I'd have to say, in addition to my yaya and um, you know mothers being mentioned, but I think I've in got some of my mum's resilience and energy. She's so industrious, overly so. She's one of those people that's always productive, often in the service of others. So I think I think between the two of them, my yaya and my mum, I've inherited some of their tenacity and energy and staying power I think I'm fairly resilient and at least I tend to keep going and apply that to you know problem solving. It's such a gift I think as a woman to have great female role models and I'm I've certainly over the years been really grateful that uh, I have seen before me the kinds of behaviours that I've then emulated. Do you think, and we will talk about med medical negligence, which is your area of specialty um, in a little while, but you know, you say that you go to your Yaya's doctor's appointments and you've advocated for her and now you found yourself advocating for your clients. Is there a link there? Uh, well, well, maybe, but I think, um, I think what the experience with my Yaya taught me was, yes, it was a straight interpreting role, but it was, you know, it was important to do that well. And I guess in that context, I was able to see how, how people communicate sometimes with people from non-English speaking backgrounds. And, you know, sometimes it's, you know, they raise their voice uh, as if being, being heard better is going to help in the understanding or they... They dumb things down so much that it, you know, it lacks meaning in the end. And um, so I think I've I've learned from that experience how to communicate with a broad range of people, um, and in a way that um, you're not speaking down at them or being condescending in the way you communicate. Mm. So the interesting thing then is moving into law as a woman twenty years ago. Um, I know now we see more female graduates from the law. Mm. I know now we're getting many, many more uh, women in senior roles in the law. Um, but did gender impact your journey at all when you started? Well, it's hard to answer that because, you know, I think it's quite subtle. Um, and also, I do think even then, um, I was entering the law at a time when, you know, a lot of the battles had already been fought and won. Um, and I reaped the benefits of a lot of that. But, you know, I, I think the combination of gender and migrant background, which we've talked about, did, did make me feel sometimes more on the outer, not so much at university, um, but more so in the workplace. And, you know, sometimes that was just about, you know, small talk, um, 
that you just weren't a part of. Um, and I think that was more of a, you know, that's more of a generational thing. And it wasn't just around gender. It was, uh, you know, whether you fit into a particular archetype. But it's just that the topics seem to sometimes be so limited to, you know, football and cricket and small talk kind of couldn't go beyond that finite list. So, you know, a bit of that, um, whereas I think conversation now is a lot a lot more open, a lot more broad, a, a lot better engagement um, across, you know, gender, um, you know, and people from different and diverse backgrounds. Um, occasionally, especially as a junior lawyer, you know, you'd, you'd be spoken to a bit as a child or not a serious player, and as if you're, you know, more of more in an assisting type role. And yes, Morris Blackburn in 2000 was a different place to now. I guess you could say it was a bit more blokey. But despite all of that, I felt immediately at home when I arrived and started at Morris Blackburn. I just knew this was the place for me. I felt comfortable as a woman and I I knew that I could be successful at Morris Blackburn because from day one, there were some strong female role models and a number of successful senior lawyers already at the firm. And, and we, had, we had a committee, and we still do, at Morris Blackburn, which is called the Women's Network. And that started as a way to profile to clients that they could access a female lawyer. And every practice area at Morris Blackburn had uh, a woman lawyer that could service clients. And, and it quickly moved to ensuring that as a firm, we were at the forefront of workplace and legal issues. Uh, impacting women and supporting women's causes both uh, within the firm and in the community and of course over all those years Morris Blackburn we've grown and we've gotten better and better um, just as the whole legal industry has and again I've reaped the benefits of all that change uh, and improvement over time. Stick around. In a moment, we're going to hear from Demetra how she manages the real trauma of working with clients who have experienced great grief and pain in a medical negligence practice. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's so interesting to hear you speak about uh, a cultural shift, certainly within Morris Blackburn Lawyers, where you've got the structural, the more formal action with your women's network. But then when you talk about small talk as well, those are those informal sort of, yeah, the, the things that really do have an impact in someone's uh, sense of belonging. As now, I hesitate to use the word, but as a senior person in the firm, not to suggest you're old, but having been there for 20 mm-hmm. years, are you aware of yourself as a role model for the junior lawyers? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's really important. And, and it's it's for junior lawyers across the board. And one of the things that I think is important is to be able to convey to junior lawyers that there's really, you know, no one way to get to the end point And um, being a junior lawyer is an important opportunity to explore different practice areas and work out what's the best for you. 
Um, and also just to be real about the challenges um, that that is that come up in what's often, you know, and it is a stressful profession to be in at times. But in terms of being a role model, um, I do see that as an important thing. And therefore, when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about how I conduct myself, how inclusive I am, um, the sort of leader I am, the kind of interactions that I have with people. Mm. I know that Morris Blackburn are particularly committed to ensuring that you know, there's really flexible work arrangements for parents and, and that there is no detriment to your t- career should you take time out. But it is one of the things most reported when we talk about women in the law and how they start out and then, you know, they sort of that mid-level often do leave the industry because they want to have a family. So mm. if there are women, young women listening to this now thinking, yeah, I, I really love my career trajectory I want to stay doing this but I also want to have a family and I can't imagine how I can do that what's your answer to that there's just no right or wrong and I think it's just a matter of starting a family when it's right for you Um, and your career is something that you can go back to now having said that it can look very different uh, than the way you left it um, definitely and um, certainly um, I think it's real and I felt it very keenly, that that sense of worry that you have about career interruption does fall more heavily on, on the woman. So, you know, that, that worry is real and we've all heard the terrible stories that uh, don't end well and it's often the woman who, who suffers. Um, sometimes, though, um, that worry that we have is just sometimes our own. It's our own inner voice that... Um, makes you worried and I had that worry Um, will I have a role what will it look like I'm not contributing while I'm away on parental leave I will I be relevant when I return will I be left behind Um, and it doesn't necessarily go away when you're back when you're juggling juggling part-time work and family responsibilities Um, over the years I felt like I'm not doing either job well at all Um, whether it's at home and at the school gate I felt like I just wasn't there enough Um, and maybe other mothers were more in tune with what was happening uh, at the school and school life. But again, that's sometimes half true, but sometimes a bit of what we tell ourselves. And then um, I think this is more a reflection on, um, you know, prior to COVID and prior to working in the flexible way we're working now, but that memory of like having to leave at a certain time, you didn't want to be the person who was picking up your child last at childcare and there's that lone child sitting mm-hmm. there. Oh, um, yes. It's hard to stop the call, yeah, to just dart away um, or tell a barrister that you can't meet at 4.30. You know, I'd say it's important to have support networks, which I feel very fortunate to have had. Um, I've had help from my own mother and nannying help and there was a time when we shared a nanny uh, with another family for a day a week. Um, your partner um, being part of the part of the process and um, part of the arrangements and you know my my husband is a barrister so he understands the works that involve that's involved in raising children etc or being in legal practice I should say while you raise children I'd also say it's important to have a sense of humor about um, the things that don't go so well the (laughs) things that you don't quite achieve 
like um, you know, missing that school notice. Uh, now it would be on a portal yes. uh, rather than a notice being sent home. Um, that's when I just call myself a bit of a derelict parent, and um, I think it helps to just be able to let the house go a bit too on the tidying and the cooking front. And I think also just having that flexibility around. You know, it's important to have demarcation between work and home life, but sometimes that just is difficult. Um, and nowadays, if I'm working on a weekend afternoon, it might be that there's also a child doing their homework. Um, but, you know, then we're both, we're, we're all working together. Yeah. And then finally, remember that children are a great switch off. You need to be completely present when you're with them. And, and that's terrific. And then, of course, they grow up fast and you're needed um, less and in very different ways. Mm. It's most definitely a situation of, I always say, you know, if the kid turns up to school in the wrong uniform, which has happened for mine, and <laughs> that is social death to them, but they'll get through it. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, you don't want to make a habit of it. <laughs> no. um, uh, you know, they are they are important people in your life, um, but I think sometimes we're a bit harsh on ourselves, uh, and you know some of those things are okay, and mm. they'll get through. So, yeah, you talk about uh, that inner voice, um, which I think women very much feel keenly. We all have those uh, the negative self talk or the, the the inner critic, which can be incredibly loud, um, but. As you say, a lot of people would assume that in your role, in your seniority, that you have just arrived, that you've never battled that kind of perhaps self-doubt or maybe even an mm. imposter syndrome sense. But would that be the case? Have you had those moments yourself? Oh, absolutely. Um, over the years, um, yeah, that, that inner critic that says, you know, you don't really belong at the table or just questioning my contribution um, was what I was saying, um, helpful, um, and just having that sense of doubt. Um, and, you know, that that improves over time. Um, and sometimes you just got to remind yourself, well, you are there, so you do, you do need to contribute. Um, and my approach now is to express my views if I think that they're valid. Um, you know, it's important to be thoughtful about that too. Um, and, and I'm less concerned about that, uh, much less. But I think that, you know, comes with experience and just keeping at it and backing yourself more and more. And do you have any life hacks that you've developed along the way to get, what's your secret of success if someone was to nail you on that one question? Well, I don't think that there are any easy life hacks, um, at least, uh, don't know that they can be reduced down to that. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, it's about um, perseverance and preparation. I try to be as studied and prepared and organized as possible. Having said that, um, I think it's also important to know what you can let go of um, and not expecting perfection, whether that's on the home front or the work front, but never compromising client outcomes. So really cutting yourself some slack there, but the right kind of slack to cut. Um, and I think also just every now and then taking a step back and reminding yourself of the enjoyable aspects, um, the things you really enjoy and love about the role that you're doing. Um, and I do that from time to time because it, it is a hard job sometimes. And so just reminding yourself about the joyous aspects is important. 
I think the other thing is to just draw on your resources um, and make sure you have other people around you with the skills that you need for your team to achieve what they have to achieve. I think also just having that sense of change and refresh. Um, and so while I've been at Morris Blackburn for a long time and the same firm, you know, seeing starting as a junior lawyer, um, becoming a competent lawyer, and then building up other people and developing others, becoming an accredited specialist with the Law Institute um, and doing committee work, tort reform work, um, and, and now leading the National uh, Medical Negligence and Dust Diseases teams at Morris Blackburn. Um, I think that helps along the way. And then I have to say, um, you know, taking breaks and prioritising rest because um, if, we, if we don't, you know, we, we don't get the opportunity to be re-energised and come back refreshed. So um, not really life hacks, but some things that I think are important um, along the way. You mentioned purpose there uh, and you are the head of National Medi Medical Negligence at Morris Blackburn. So how, I mean, I feel like that's the kind of role where you really have a sense of why when you go to work? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's a, it's a great privilege um, to do the work that I do, that we do. Um, and that's because of um, uh, the outcomes that we can be a part of. Um, we can assist someone in finding out what happened to them. If there is something that has happened that shouldn't have happened, to be part of the solution, to right that wrong, to pursue a claim if that's the appropriate avenue for the person. The outcomes that we achieve, the compensation outcomes we achieve can really be you know, quite life-changing for some people. So there's nothing quite like that. Um, and then the other part of it is knowing that while we work on one case at a time, there are learnings uh, and healthcare improvements that sometimes come about from the cases that we do. You know, I imagine also in that process, you're hearing and representing the stories of people who have experienced enormous pain and enormous grief, a great, great trauma for them. How do you process that? How do you manage that very experience? Yeah, sometimes that's really incredibly hard to hear what our clients have been through or to read about it in the medical records. Um, and it's so incredibly relatable because this could happen to any of us. It can be really confronting. And sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm so affected that I think if I was anywhere else, I'd probably, you know, there'd probably be tears. Um, but I don't let that happen with my clients in that moment. But I do let them know that from one person to another, I've heard them and I'm impacted and moved. So do you think, well, from an outsider, I would say what you just described, to be able to do that for your client and to be present, to hold space for them, makes you a fairly unique person. Would you say you have unique qualities that allow you to do your job? No, I don't think so. I'm often thinking about the fact that there are a lot of people who in their profession have to deal with really confronting things. Um, you know, I always think about first responders and what they uh, need to do in that moment. Um, so I'm conscious that um, I'm, I'm hearing things secondhand. 
um, I haven't gone through this, but I so feel um, empathy for the person in terms of what they're going through. Um, and and I think about, you know, I, I do, I think about what would, what would it be like if that happened in my family or to my child? And, and that's about being human and having a human response to things. But, um, but then it's about, well, I've got a job to do and I need to do it well. Um, I need to see whether there is uh, a claim here for this person, whether legal representation um, in a claim is what's going to be of assistance to that person or not. So I've got to get on with that job um, and investigate it for them and um, give them that dignity um, of, of letting them know what, what, what their rights are and what their legal entitlements might be. So it's, a, it's, it's about being proactive. So as we talk with you, Demetra, 20 years into your career, what are you most proud of? Um, well, um, really helping right wrongs um, and having that privilege uh, to journey with our clients in what is clearly one of the most difficult periods of their life, um, that sense of trust that people put in us um, and really remaining true to myself and my values throughout that time. And I think my yaya would have been proud of that too. Oh, that's very lovely. I'm sure that she would be proud of you. If, if, if a young woman is listening to this now, or even a senior woman, myself even, listening to you speak, and we're sort of feeling a little flagging and we do need some inspiration to keep going, what would you say? I would say uh, it's coming back to those core values that you have and that you hold dear and um, looking at what your role is and you probably are contributing in a way that you don't even recognise because sometimes we are our own harshest critic. Um, it's, it's important to look elsewhere and see what other people are doing, what they're achieving, but it's sometimes not necessarily even the big wins or the big matters or the big cases. It's just about day to day, how we treat each other, how we treat our clients, how we conduct ourselves. And you are probably making an impact on people that you don't even recognize. But it is important to keep questioning um, our role and what it is that we're contributing. And as I say, I think we're contributing a lot more than we sometimes give ourselves credit for. I think that's very, very true. Demetra, thank you so much for sharing your story and your journey with us. I found it very inspiring. Thank you, Jo. It was great to be here with you today and be in conversation. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, that brings this series of Lay Down the Law to an end. Do check out the other episodes where we share stories of advocacy and fighting for justice, whether it be reproductive rights, Aboriginal rights, superannuation equality, sexual harassment in the workplace. There's even a fantastic mental health conversation in there. Thanks again to Morris Blackburn Lawyers for partnering with Broad Radio in this podcast series. Follow us at broadradio.com.au for more smart, funny and uplifting conversations by women for women.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.